All right, if you have your Bible, turn over to Genesis 32 as we continue in the story of Jacob. Tonight, uh, we are going to be looking at a really famous part of Jacob's life. Many of the parts of Jacob's life are famous, but this one perhaps more than any other. The scene where he wrestles with God. Uh, what he thinks is this mysterious man who jumps him in the middle of the night, and it turns out to be God himself. And so I'm, I'm going to begin actually in verse 1 and read the whole chapter because what will come out is you'll realize this scene happens in the context of Jacob worrying about the future. And the wrestling is really an opportunity for Jacob and us to learn about worry and anxiety and how prayer ought to be the alternative to worry in our lives. Let's look. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Naim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to the servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him. With the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. 
He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face or God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The word of the Lord. Jacob is here in this scene trying to enter back into the land of promise. Remember where we were a couple weeks ago when we last met? Uh, Jacob had broken up with Laban, his father-in-law, and it took a while for that breakup to be fully complete because Laban wasn't wanting, wanting him to go. But finally, by God's intervention, Jacob left with all his wealth and riches that he had obtained from Laban's house. But as he's going into the land, this happens. Uh, he hears a report about his brother coming towards him with 400 men armed and ready. Uh, Jacob feels like there's only one thing he can conclude about that. And so he starts going into normal sort of uh, scheming mode. And then on top of it all, at night as he's fretting about it, can't sleep, sitting up, toiling over it, some dude out of the darkness jumps on his back and starts fighting him and will not stop fighting him until the sun comes up. A perfect picture, actually, of the difference between prayer and worry, which is what I want to talk to you about tonight. And if you don't believe me that that's what it's about, stay tuned because it'll unfold for you, I think, as we go. Look at your bulletin. There are three parts to the story. There's fear in the camp, which helps us to know why we struggle with worry as well as why Jacob did. Secondly, there's the hitch in the plan. What's wrong with worry? And then lastly, there's the join in the hip. How God helps us overcome worry. Y'all want to talk about it? Anybody have a problem with worry? <laughs> nah, right? Nobody does. All right, first of all, why do we struggle with worry? Look at the fear in the camp there in verses 1 through 8. Uh, the scene starts incredibly uh, positive for Jacob. In verses uh, 1 and 2, Jacob actually sees something that he doesn't ordinarily see. What does he see? Angels. Uh, God opens up Jacob's eyes. This happens uh, several different times throughout the Bible where God will open up a person's eyes and for a moment, usually it's just a moment, they can see sort of what's going on among the spiritual beings that are always there and yet we can't always see them. And here it is. Jacob's eyes are open and he sees the spiritual beings that are right there with him in the camp. It's almost like within his camp and around his camp, there's another camp of God's host, God's armies, 
constantly watching and protecting Jacob's camp, That's, which is the reason why he names that place Mahanaim, which uh, comes from a, a Hebrew word that means two camps. Uh, Jacob realized it wasn't just his camp, it was also the camp of God that was surrounding him. So first, first of all, verses 1 and 2 make us think, okay, Jacob's about to whip this situation. He has just seen that God is encamped around his camp. No matter what happens next, Jacob is going to soar into it like a spiritual giant. Is that what happens? Not so much. Verses 3 through 8, Jacob looks an awful lot like me. Messengers had been sent by Jacob to check out. Already Jacob had been thinking, what am I going to do about Esau if I run into him? That's awkward. What if I run into him in Publix? When I'm back in the promised land, what am I going to do, right? We've all had this issue where we're like, what if I run into the person that I've been in a fight with? Jacob is thinking that same thing. What if I'm out in the, in the land and boom, there's Esau? What am I going to say? What is he going to say? How am I going to defend myself? So he's already sent out these messengers, verse 3. But by the time he sees the angels, the messengers are now returning. That's what's being described. They're returning back. And they give a report to Jacob, which you see in verse 6. We came into the land, we saw Esau, and he was headed towards you. And by the way, behind him there were 400 other men. Now what does that sound like? It sounds more like an ambush than a welcoming committee. You know, he doesn't say, okay... A whole group of men and women are there, and man, they have all, they have all these, this food, and they're coming out with platters, and they have banners that say, Welcome home, Jacob. None of that. Instead, 400 men, males, that, that, to, to Jacob's mind at least, that means fighters. Esau is preparing to kick me back out of the land as soon as I set foot back in it. And immediately, Jacob begins to wrestle and struggle within with worry. And you see the words used there in verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Both of those words describe what goes on in our lives when we worry. An external circumstance causes an internal reaction, which is a natural reaction, but then we feed into that reaction because we stew over it. We stew over it. We feed it. And the way that we feed the distress and the fear is we speculate about the future, which is exactly what Jacob does. Notice after verse 7 where it says he's greatly afraid, verse 8, he does an if-then statement. And an if-then is by nature a speculation, right? If this happens, then that happens. Jacob's doing this. He says, okay, I'm going to divide the camp. I've already seen that there's the angels of God, by the way. But instead of relying on that, I'm going to make two camps of my camp. I'm going to divide my camp into two because if Esau attacks the one, at least the other will get away safe. So you can already see fear and worry coming to, into play here. Instead of relying on a vision of the spiritual reality that God had showed him, he starts trying to come up with his own solution to what he thinks might happen. He doesn't know what's going to happen, does he? Just like we don't ever know what is going to happen, 
but we sure can convince ourselves that we do. Isn't that true? Our speculations, if and then, can sometimes seem just sure like gospel truth. Even though when it really comes down to it, we got no idea what the future holds. Not a clue. And yet as we feed the speculation, it feeds the distress and it feeds the fear. And boom, we are doing what the Bible calls eating the bread of anxious toil. That's a wonderful phrase from one of the Psalms where he says that it's a foolish thing to stay up late at night eating the bread of anxious toil. Anybody ever had a slice of that bread? (laughs) Anxious toil. I've had loaves of it, right? Loaves of the bread of anxious toil. And it's usually always fueled by basically empty speculations about what might happen, what could happen. What might be the worst case scenario of what might happen? Do you see? And I feel in that moment like I have to eat the bread of anxious toil because I am at the bottom as a sinner. I am full of unbelief and pride. That's what makes fear work at the end of the day. Underneath all the fear is unbelief and pride. After all, if unbelief and pride wasn't in me, when I'm under stress, it wouldn't come out. Think about a bottle full of liquid. If you shake a bottle full of liquid or squeeze it till it pops, what comes out of the bottle? Well, it depends. It depends on what's in it to begin with. If it's a bottle of Coke, Coke comes out. If it's a bottle of water, water comes out. The pressure doesn't make the water be there. The pressure just exposes what was already there. Uh, The pressure can't turn turn water into Coke. It'd be kind of cool if you could do that, but it doesn't happen. The pressure cannot turn water into Coke. The circumstances of my life don't make me struggle to believe in God or struggle with pride and self-assurance. I already am proud, and I already am naturally unbelieving. The the, the pressure of life only brings it out of me. (laughs) And we see that at work here in Jacob. And this is a Jacob who has just seen a vision of angels. And I've never seen a vision of angels, right? And and you probably haven't either, right? Seen a vision of angels. And so if Jacob, the great patriarch, after seeing angels had a problem, do you think you will? Do you think you and I need some help along these same lines? Pride and unbelief are found in us. When I speculate about the future, I think in my unbelief that God is not going to be enough for me in that hypothetical situation. Jacob saw the angel camp, but he thought if Esau attacks, it must be on me. It can't. He didn't even seem to factor in, wait a minute, the angels might show up. He just said, I've got to divide up, and so if he kills one half, at least the other half will live. It's like he's completely written off God's presence. In my pride, I think not only God can't, is not enough or not going to be enough, but I think that I can be if I just do the right thing, if I just plan it right, if I just have the right amount of money or whatever. You know, Everything will be all right, and I'll be able to take care of that what-if scenario. That's the way the bread of anxious toil works. All right, That's why we struggle. Now, secondly, there's not only fear in the camp, there's a hitch in the plan. Um, worry is wrong 
Let me actually say it a different way. Worry is a sin against God. And it's actually a sin against ourselves and other people as well. We have to kind of reconsider this idea that worry is a harmless sin or a victimless crime. I want you to look. Uh, look there at verse 9 through 21, and, and we'll, I'll talk you through a few things here. First of all, let me, before I ask you a question, let me show you, Jacob is not all bad here. And so what this shows is this is a believer struggling. Jacob is, by this point, a believer. Notice verses 9 through 12, Jacob does the right thing first, or really second, because he's already divided the camp into two. After he does that, he gets to the right thing, which is to pray. And look down at your Bible at verses 9 to 12. Look at that prayer. Could you have prayed a better prayer than Jacob prayed? I mean, honestly, this is a model prayer in distress. He starts out by acknowledging God. O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. He acknowledges God's word. You're the God who said to me, return to your country and to your father Isaac, that I may do you good. He confesses his sin and embraces God's grace. He says, 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and all the faithfulness you've shown me. Please deliver me, he says. He pours out his request before God and he bases it on God's promises. Please deliver me. Why? Because, verse 12, you have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob, what an awesome prayer. Help me to pray like Jacob, right? Well, let's look at the next part. What does Jacob then turn around and do? Scheme again. This time, what's his scheme? That's right. I'm going to buy him off. I'm going to put as, I'm going to throw as much money in Jacob's terminology. It was, you know, goats and camels. And this is money, basically. This is currency. I'm going to throw as much of my wealth at the problem as I can to make it stop. And he expresses it very well there in verse 20 where he says, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. Which is another way of saying, I may buy him off. It may be that every man has his price, right? It may be that I get Esau's price just right. And so instead of bringing 400 men against me to kill me, he, he receives this present, this gift, and we all of a sudden become buddies again. Or at least we agree to disagree. He goes his way, I go my way because I bought him off. Right after praying the most wonderful prayer in all in, of all time in, in distress, a prayer that could have been written in the Psalms, he turns around and starts trying to throw money at it. Can you identify with that at all? Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten up from the couch of prayer and immediately gone to check the bank account? You know, got up from the couch of prayer and immediately tried to scheme and get your way? Have you gotten up from prayer and immediately started yelling at the person that offended you? Have you ever done something like that? We all have, right? 
It is every time an exposure, honestly, of how maybe insincere to in some degree our prayer really was. I'm not, I'm not accusing Jacob, of course, of being completely insincere here. Of course not. I don't think he was. Neither would I accuse you of being completely insincere or even myself when I pray and then turn around and do the opposite. However, there is some measure of insincerity. There has to be or else we wouldn't do that. Aren't you right? Aren't you, don't you agree? He says, God, you need to deliver me. And then he says, well, I'm going to try to throw my money at it. God, I see that you're in my camp. Oh, but I'm going to divide my camps. God, you're the God who came to me and said, you're going to bless me. Oh, but my money might do it. He's undoing with his hands what he built with his prayers. And that's one of the ways that worry is not a harmless sin. Because worry actually dishonors God. Why do you think God was dishonored by Jacob's course of action here? Think about that for a moment. What, what was dishonoring to God about it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when God calls us to pray, but he wants us to pray sincerely, right? And that means he wants us to actually believe what we say. And the proof of that would be, do we live the way that we said we believed? <laughs> right? What else? Put yourself in a similar situation, okay? I know we can't say, imagine you are God. I don't want you to do that. But, <laughs> um, but imagine someone expressed trust in you to do a job. But then instead of trusting you to do the job, they went and did it. Or after you did it, they went and did it a different way. They, they redid it. How does that make you feel? This is your job. I trust you to do it. But then you find out they're over there doing it anyway. Do you like that? How does that make you feel? Not heard? Not heard. Kind of hurt. hurt, yep. Belittled. insulting for sure insulting right um yeah if you really think that other person can do it why are you doing it if jacob really thinks god can defend him against his brother and even change his brother's heart he could if, if jacob really believed that was possible why does he then feel like he has to do the work to do it Every time we pray and then go to the infamous plan B, which we've devised in our own head, we are actually dishonoring God. Eating the bread of anxious toil is very dishonoring to the Lord, which is why Paul said, we read it earlier, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, supplication means basically begging God, with thanksgiving, Make your request made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart. It doesn't say, pray and then be anxious, as if it depended on you. It says, pray, 
put it into God's court and leave it there for him to do. That's different, isn't it? I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with leaving it there. I put it there, quote unquote, and then I like to take a little bit of it back so I can control it, you know, so that I can make sure it works the way I think it's going to work. Again, me speculating, me trying to think I can know the future and figure it out and make it all right. Well, that's not the only thing. Because actually, worry also makes victims of other people in our lives. Worry puts others at risk. How does Jacob's procedure here put other people in his life at risk? Two camps. So guess what? Some people have to be in one and some people in the other. Somebody's got to decide who goes first. Guess who decided who went first and second and third and fourth? Did y'all understand that as we read it? You know, he sent one group first, one group second, one group third, so that maybe with each one, Esau would get a little softer. Well, imagine being that first group. There's a pretty significant risk. Who decided who was in that group? Jacob. In fact, we're told in chapter 33 the exact order, painfully, we were told this, and when you read it, you cringe, because Jacob put his favorites last and his less favorites first. It says, first, there was Leah and Rachel next, the two females. I mean, no, excuse me, he put the servants and their children first, then Leah, then Rachel, and last of all, Joseph, with the technicolor coat, right? <laughs> His favorite. Well, he may have thought, wait a minute, like we think, oh, worry's not a big deal. I'm, only, I'm not hurting anybody. Maybe just hurting myself. But in his worry, he was blinded to a very weak spot in his heart, which was favoritism. Alex? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, how do you think he made everybody feel as he was dividing them up and giving them all those instructions about, hey, when you see Esau, just say, Jacob's back there. Here's a gift. I mean, do you think he's inspiring, as Alex says, is he inspiring confidence in the troops? <laughs> is he saying, pick up your heads, y'all. It's going to be okay. Let's trust in the Lord. No, he's saying, join me. You know, I've got plenty of loaves of anxious toil to go around. Let's have a feast of anxiety, which is often what what we do when we're worrisome, isn't it? As we drag other people in with it. And when we drag other people in with us or try to, we also become sloppy and we lack compassion in the way we treat people. And so we end up defaulting to our defaults, which are usually not good defaults. In Jacob's case, it was, I value Joseph over Rachel, over Leah, over the servants. And so if, if Esau kills the servants and their kids, okay. If he kills Leah, eh, still not good, but a little bit less, you know, a little bit better. You know, if, if he killed, I mean, that's sick, isn't it? And yet worry drove Jacob to that procedure. And so worry is not a victimless crime. I would encourage you to think about your own worry in your life and 
ways that it has similarly driven you and driven me to that kind of behavior, to treat people less than they should be treated because we're over here balled up in knots, worried about things. Well, that's not it. Worry is also bad to yourself. It dishonors God, it puts others at risk, and it's bad to yourself. Why? Remember I talked about pride and unbelief? Worry is like toning the muscles of pride and unbelief in your own heart and your own soul. Um, If a man or a woman wants to be a fool, they should worry a lot. The Bible says it's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. If you want to be good at being a fool, worry. Because worry exercises the fool muscle that is naturally within each of us. And it lets the spiritually strong muscles that God has implanted in there, it lets them die on the vine and become weak and sickly. So that if I've worried a ton, the next time I get to that situation, well, guess what muscle is going to be strong? The fool muscle. The wise muscles over there barely, you know, it's not able to lift anything because I haven't exercised it. It's buckling under the weight. But then my fool muscle comes in, I've got this. Let me be foolish again. Have you found that, that in your life, the momentum of worry builds to, you become like this worry bodybuilder, you know? Well, the Bible says that is not good for you. It's not good for me to do that. Uh, Jesus put it this way, um, don't worry about what you'll put on, about what you'll eat, about what you'll drink. God knows you need these things. Your Father will provide them. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. That's what he was talking about. Exercise your muscles in seeking God and his kingdom and don't worry about the other. Because if you worry about the other, you will not exercise your muscles in seeking God and his kingdom. You'll just have muscles that worry about all the things that the Gentiles worry about. Translation, you'll be a fool. A strong fool, but a fool. Strong words to call people fools, but it's not me, it's the Bible. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God saying to the man who uh, built the extra barns in Jesus' story, let me build barns for myself to store them. God came to him and said, you are a fool because you have not considered me in your life. You've only considered yourself. All right, that's what's wrong with worry. I think we've made the point. Now, lastly, how does God help us overcome it? The joint in the hip. This is the great part of the story that everybody loves, but it was important to build the background because sometimes we don't know what the context is of God wrestling with Jacob, but it happens to be Jacob wrestling with worry when God jumps on top of Jacob. There he is, verse 22, that same night. um, He sends the last of his wives over the river, and he stays behind. Again, he's just, you know... His faith muscle is struggling at this point while he's over there building up his fool muscle. And all of a sudden, verse 24, a man started wrestling with him. And he kept wrestling with him until the break of day. Now put yourself in Jacob's place. He's on the borders of the promised land. He's worried about his brother and the 400 men with him. It's pitch black dark. 
and suddenly he gets jumped and he has, he's in a wrestling match. And all he knows is he's got to wrestle his way out of it. What, what do you think Jacob's thinking? What else can go wrong? <laughs> yep. What else? One of Esau's men. Yeah, it's got to be. They're fast. Wow. He must have sent scouts that are really quick because they're already here. There's one of them here, and he's on my back, and I can't get him off. What am I going to do? And it says it, it took all the way to the breaking of the day for Jacob to realize something else was going on here. As the light starts to come up, he, he sees, okay, this is not one of Esau's men. Who is this? Who is this man, this mysterious person? And as soon as he recognizes that, what, is the, what does the man do? You know, he, it said, I love how it says it in Hebrew. He touched his hip socket, meaning he laid a blow on it that put it out of joint. He broke his hip with his hand. And yet Jacob keeps hanging on to him. Verse 26, the man actually says, let me go. <laughs> I've beaten you. Let me go. Give up already. And Jacob says what? Beautiful. I will not let you go until you bless me. Who does Jacob know it is, know, know it is now? He realizes who it is, doesn't he? It's somebody connected to God. Whether he believes it's an angel, whether he believes whatever. I don't know exactly how he's got it in his mind. He knows that he is encountering God in some way, in some form. And he's now in a position where, you know, crippled by this injury, worn out from a night of just absolute dogfight, he is finally able to say, Lord, I am all yours. Just bless me and I won't let you go until you do. Jacob started the chapter praying a beautiful prayer. He ended the chapter praying a real prayer. Now, I'm not saying beautiful prayers can't be real prayers, and real prayers can't be beautiful. They can. I'm saying there is a difference between beautiful prayers and real prayers. Real prayers are sincere prayers. And finally, Jacob is able to be more sincere in his praying when God puts his hip out of joint. God is showing, by the way, Jacob's dependence. He's showing his control over Jacob's life. I mean, you may have wondered, what's this deal about the man asks Jacob for his name, verse 27, Jacob says, Jacob, which by the way, remember what that means? What does Jacob mean? Liar. The man goes, tell me your name. Liar. And God says, you are no longer liar. You are, he wrestles with God. He is Israel. Wow, rename. And then Jacob turns around and says, well, tell me your name. And God says, why should I tell you my name? Well, you say, that's confusing. Well, it's not confusing in the ancient world. To know someone's name, and especially to know the name of a God in people's minds, that meant you had some kind of influence or control over them. To name a person or to say a name, it was almost like a magic incantation in a lot of people's view. If you use the name of a powerful person or God, you could exercise their power. Right? God will not let Jacob treat him that way. And so he, doesn't, he will not tell him his name, 
But he does demand of Jacob that Jacob tell him his name. And then God changes his name to what he wants it to be. You see the point. The breaking of the hip, the renaming, the refusal to tell Jacob his name. What does that show you? God is screaming to Jacob, I am in control of your life. You are not. Don't pray to me and then act like you can throw your money at the problem. If you're going to pray to me, pray to me and leave it with me because I can handle it. Isn't that a good lesson? It's one that I need to hear all the time because I'm really bad at it. I'm, I'm really slow to get this. And yet I've found in my life, God, he's not broken my hip in a wrestling match. But God has often, you know, brought things into my life that weaken me or that show me my weakness. And probably you can relate to this in some way in your life. He lets things into our lives that just humble us in the dust and remind us we cannot afford it. We can't do it. There, no amount of money can solve it. No amount of my own strength can solve it. No amount of my supposed righteousness can earn it. I've got to simply get it from God. And so what that does is it creates in me a heart that really wants to get about the business of prayer instead of worry. You know, instead of praying and saying, oh, Lord, God of heaven and earth, help me. And then after I get away from prayer, I'm over there, toil, 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 bread, 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 figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. Now I'm actually ready to say, God of heaven and earth, take it. I won't let you go until you bless me. Wow. That's a different kind of prayer. And one that, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ modeled as well. On another night, in another garden, when he was all alone, before he was about to face someone bigger than Esau on the cross. Y'all know what I'm talking about? In Gethsemane, what did Jesus Christ do? He wrestled with his father in prayer. He, in a sense, asked the Lord, can you change it? Can you change this? God said no. Jesus knew it was right. He accepted it. He left it in God's hands. And in that garden, God wrestled. I mean, Jesus wrestled with the Father so that you and I don't have to wrestle with the Father, so that you and I don't have to receive his condemning judgment but can instead receive his touch and his word of blessing. So that instead of being Jacobs and fools, you and I can be sons, daughters, strivers with God and man who, as it says here, who prevail. The prayer of a righteous man is effective and availeth much. Why does it availeth much? <laughs> Why? Because in the garden, Christ prevailed. And so our prayers now in the throne of God can avail much. Jacob was in touch with that. Many people even say that this 
physical form of God that appeared to Jacob may have even been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I don't know. I can't tell you if that's exactly true or not. That Many people have thought that and speculated it. Even if it wasn't, we do know this, that a physical manifestation of God sounds a whole lot like Jesus. <laughs> and isn't it amazing that we now as Christians get to wrestle with one who has already wrestled for us. Isn't that good? And so, next time you are tempted to worry, which will probably be in 10 minutes, or by the time you get home, this is Sunday night after all, and we know what happens on Sunday night around this time. We start to worry about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Remember, it's normal, but that doesn't make it good. In fact, it's not harmless at all. But it is an opportunity for you to learn how to bring it to God and guess what? Leave it there. Because Jesus brought himself to God and left your sin there. And it's still there. And it's, it's been wiped out, never to return again. Amen?